Welcome to Soul Searching here on Gay Essay Radio, the program where you and I take a look at all the spiritual matters that matter. I'm Tom Budge. The Swiss-American psychiatrist and author of the groundbreaking book On Death and Dying, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, spent her life teaching students her theory of the five stages of grief. This comes about after one receives the news of one's impending death. These are those stages in the sequence in which they occur. First there is denial. It can't be happening to me. Then there is anger. Why didn't I do something sooner? This is followed by bargaining. Dear Lord, I promise to live a life in service of you if you spare me now. Then depression sets in. And finally, even if just in the last few moments of life, there is the acceptance of death. Most of us have a morbid fear of our own mortality. We are generally petrified to die. But what we dread more is having to be with someone else as they prepare to die. I've been with many people as they die and I have a strange sense of joy that comes over me as the person sheds the body. For me it is like being with someone at their graduation ceremony. Awkwardness comes about when you don't quite know what to do or say when you visit a terminally ill patient and the last thing a dying person wants to hear is you talking about the weather, the bouquet of flowers in the room or gifts that they have received. Dr. Kubler-Ross says that every dying person knows that they are dying and that they have other very important issues on their mind which need to be spoken about. Here's the doctor's advice to us when we visit a dying person. The easiest thing in the world is to walk into a terminally ill patient's room and say, I would like to help you. I don't have the slightest idea what I can do or what to say, and I'm in fact very leery about it. But maybe we can help each other. And they open up, it's like opening floodgates. Or you touch them and say, God, it must be tough. And they say, tough, that's not even a word for it. I've rang the nurses about six times, nobody comes. Everybody has rounds outside. All my relatives are coming visit me with all these fancy gifts. And before they were so stingy, they didn't even give me a Christmas present. Don't you know that I know? And, you know, they begin to share what it's like when somebody suddenly becomes, quote, a dying patient, and they can get away with anything and everything. I guess that most of our fear about death is admitting that science might be right when it suggests that there is only total oblivion after death. Science requires greater skepticism than is found amongst religions regarding the belief in the continuity of consciousness after death. Regarding the mind-body problem, most neuroscientists believe that the physical phenomenon such as neuronal activity occurring in the brain stops functioning at death and that consciousness fails to survive and ceases to exist. Richard Dawkins, an evolutionary biologist and author of the book The God Delusion, debates some of these issues with the Australian Cardinal of the Catholic Church, George Pell, in the Australian TV program Q&A. Well, the answer to the question of what's going to happen when, when we die depends whether we're buried, cremated or give our bodies to science. The brain is what we do our thinking with. The brain is going to rot. That's, that's, that's all there is to it. Um, I'm intrigued by the cardinals saying that the Christians believe you're going to be resurrected in the body. I mean, that's an astonishing idea. And I, I don't believe you really mean that. And I, and I think... Um, 
just, just as I don't believe you really mean that the, the wafer turns into the body of Christ. But religion provides some glimmer of hope holding out different types of beliefs in an afterlife, a realm in which an essential part of your individual identity or consciousness continues to exist after the death of your body. There are a number of key beliefs regarding the hereafter. There is the belief that you are born into this world to begin a cycle of repeated lives, each with no memory of what happened to you in the past. Another belief is that after your death, you will go to a specific plane of existence determined by God, such as heaven or hell, limbo or purgatory. Catholics believe that if you are unbaptized yet innocent, virtuous or have influenced others to do good, you could go to a state of limbo. All those souls who lived before Jesus was born on earth, or who died before baptism, exist neither in heaven nor hell in any proper sense, because they don't merit beatification, nor are they subjected to any form of punishment. In limbo, they exist in a state of eternal natural happiness. Another Catholic notion is one of purgatory. All souls who die in God's grace and friendship, but who are still imperfectly purified, are assured of eternal salvation. But in order to achieve holiness, it is necessary for them to go through a refining process, a cleansing fire. This intermediate state between death and resurrection is said to give you a chance of growing in holiness through the helping prayers of others. African traditions are very diverse in their beliefs in an afterlife. Ancestor cults are found throughout Africa. In most African societies, there is a marked absence of such clear-cut notions of heaven and hell, but there is a widespread belief that God judges the dead. One cross-cultural theme is that one's ancestors are part of the world of the living, regularly interacting with it. Here's a clip from Laura Roberts's chat with Howard, a Parks Board Ranger. Some of uh, you might have noticed as you drive Coming here, you've seen some of these houses, like round houses. You saw yesterday uh, when we went to the village, and I said, We as African people believe there's life after death. Now, if someone die within the family, what will do? You need to talk to the spirit. You finish burying, you bury that person. Then uh, we'll take one of those trees, just a twig. See the thorns pointing back and the thorns pointing forward. You talk to the spirit and talk to that uh, person. Wish him good luck, the thorns pointing forward, blah, blah, blah. Depend within the family store. And the thorns pointing backward. You mustn't forget the background, the family, the kids, and so on and so on. Then you need to take this twig and put it at the top, like in that round house at the top. Mm -hmm. That's where we believe all the spirits stay. Should something happen, let's say he died of a like a car accident or something, you will even go where he actually died. Then you talk to the spirit because you believe that is where he's still waiting and hoping someone's going to come and fetch him. Mm. And you still come there, light the candles, talk to him, and with all these elder, elders, then you'll take the pick to the family. Then you will slaughter a goat. If it's a goat, it will be like a family 
thing that you'll enjoy and have a dinner together. But if you decide you need to slaughter like a, a cow, then you might invite neighbors and all mm -hmm. those other people. Mm -hmm. Nobody's allowed except the elders, normally grandmothers or grandfathers, that will sleep in that run house. Youngsters are not allowed there. The afterlife played an important role in ancient Egypt and its belief systems is one of the earliest known in recorded history. When the body died, parts of its soul would go to the kingdom of the dead. Arriving at one's reward in the afterlife was a demanding ordeal, requiring a pure heart and the ability to recite the spells and passwords from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. They also believed that having the mummified body placed in a sarcophagus was the only way to guarantee the afterlife. Only if the corpse had been properly embalmed could the dead live again. Because of the many dangers of the afterlife, the Book of the Dead was placed in the tomb with the body along with food, jewellery and other useful artefacts for the journey to the other side. In Judaism, the Hebrew Bible mentions Sheol as the place of the dead. The traditional interpretation of Sheol is not quite certain, but it might literally imply that it is underground. The Talmud offers a number of thoughts relating to the afterlife. After death, the soul is brought for judgment. Those who have led pristine lives enter immediately into the world to come. Many do not enter immediately but experience a period of review of their earthly actions and they are made aware of what they have done wrong. After this period of reschooling for a year or less, the soul then takes its place in the world to come. There is a concept of soul extinction reserved for a tiny group of malicious and evil leaders whose deeds go way beyond what is normal and for those who coerced large groups of people to perform deeds of utmost evil. The Zohar describes Gehenna not only as the place of punishment for the wicked but also as a place of spiritual purification for souls. Mainstream Christianity professes a belief in the resurrection of the dead. This is at the time of Christ's second coming, a rapturous event at the end of the world when a new heaven and a new earth are formed. This belief is that the time will come when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, and all who are in the tombs will come out, those who have done good deeds, to the resurrection of life, but those who have done evil, to the resurrection of of condemnation. In the Islamic belief, as stated in the Quran, the afterlife depicts a level of comfort while resting in the grave. This depends wholly on the level of faith by which one lived. Islam teaches that the life we live on earth is nothing but a test for us in order to determine each person's individual ultimate abode later on in the eternal afterlife, be it one of punishment or paradise. The central doctrine of the Quran is the last day, on which the world will be destroyed and Allah will raise all people from the dead to be judged. Until then, deceased souls remain in their graves, awaiting the resurrection. Those bound for hell will suffer eternally in their graves, and those bound for heaven will be in peace until the end of time. Many Indian religions believe that the nature of your continued existence is determined directly by your actions in the life that you just ended. This is known as karma. 
Acharya Sri Yogesh speaks of karma this way. Your soul allows to choose what kind of parents you want. That's what you need to know. Be good, you can be the leader. Because you are collecting good karma and good karma helps you. They help you, but soul is the leader, leading force. For Hindus, the Bhagavad Gita talks extensively about the afterlife. Lord Krishna says that just as a man discards old clothes and puts on new ones, so the soul discards the old body and takes on a new one. The belief is that the body is but a shell and that the soul is immutable and indestructible and takes on different lives in repeated cycles of birth and death. The soul leaves the body and reincarnates according to the karma accrued in the life that just ended. Rebirth would be in the form of animals or other lower creatures if one performed bad karmas, and in human form and in a good family with a joyous lifetime if the person was good. Buddhism maintains that rebirth takes place often when the changing self or soul passes from one form to another. If a person committed harmful actions of body, speech and mind, based on greed, hatred and delusion, rebirth is to a lower realm, like an animal or a ghost. On the other hand, where a person has performed skillful actions based on generosity, loving-kindness, compassion and wisdom, rebirth is happy, to a human life or to one of the many heavenly realms. The Tibetan Book of the Dead is the text that explains the intermediate state of human beings between death and reincarnation. The deceased will find the bright light of wisdom, which shows a straightforward path to move upward in order to escape the reincarnation cycle. In 1901, a physician by the name of Duncan McDougall sought to measure the weight lost by a human when the soul departed the body after death. He weighed many dying patients in an attempt to prove that the soul was a material, tangible and measurable thing. Although his results varied considerably, a figure of 21 grams became synonymous with the measure of a soul's mass. In parapsychology, investigations of the afterlife include the study of near-death experiences, hauntings, apparitions of the deceased, instrumental transcommunication, electronic voice phenomenon, and mediumship. Irvin Laszlo, twice nominated for Nobel Prizes, is an advocate of the theory of quantum consciousness. This Hungarian philosopher of science posits that the quantum vacuum of space is the fundamental energy and information-carrying field that informs not just the current universe, but all universes past and present. He believes this is the Akashic Record, a universal collection of every thought, event and emotion since the beginning of time. Miriam Knight interviews Dr. Laszlo on the Akashic field. You can't have evolution in the universe unless you have connection. Not only normal connection, it has to be some kind of a connection that's constant, practically instant, and it's absolutely embracing. embracing. Uh, this is a conclusion that I came to after, not right away, after 15, 20 years of studying how systems evolve. 
whether they are, you know, chemical systems or biological systems, ecological systems, entire civilizations or galaxies for that matter. Any complex system, if it's going to evolve, it must have contact and communication. And so when I realized that, then I started searching what could it be in the universe? What kind of feature is there that uh, could, uh, could communicate, could establish contact? And then I came up with many ideas, but the key idea has always been basically what is known in science as the vacuum or the quantum vacuum. It's a big misnomer because it's not empty. It's the most energy and information-filled thing you can have. And so, uh, so I realized that this I must search over there. And when I looked, I found, among other things, that this idea of a deep dimension in the universe that creates connection and acts as a memory because it, it, it remembers what has taken place. This idea has been around for 5,000 years. So when I came up, uh, came across that idea, which is the Hindu concept of uh, the Sanskrit notion of Akasha, uh, then I decided to call this the Akashic field. People continuously seek proof of the afterlife. They cite past life regression as proof of a previous spiritual existence or memory of a past incarnation. Near-death experiences are also offered as proof of an afterlife because some people claim they can remember details of their experience leading to death after they are medically resuscitated. There are also some people who claim to remember perfect facts of the lives of others who lived in a different time in history. Neuroscientists postulate that near-death experiences are nothing more than a hallucinatory state caused by various factors that they call an experience of imminent death. These experiences are characteristically split into five discrete categories. Feelings of peace, a sense of body separation, entering into darkness, seeing the light, and entering the light. Scientific studies of these experiences have noticed that they are not influenced by people who are more religious or who have suicidal background, nor are they particularly linked to psychiatric treatment or any family history of suicidal behavior. Scientists experimenting on laboratory rats showed that there was heightened brain activity following induced cardiac arrest which may explain why humans experience this phenomenon too if they are yanked from death's door. Intravenously injecting ketamine also produces all the features of a near-death experience that leads many researchers to believe these sensations are the natural phenomenon of a dying brain. A past life regression is a hypnosis technique used to recover memories of alleged past lives. Oprah Winfrey interviewed Dr. Brian Weiss about these techniques on her Super Soul Sunday show. Back in 1980, Dr. Brian Weiss was using hypnotherapy with a patient named Catherine to discover the roots of her paralyzing phobias. In his book, Many Lives, Many Masters, he writes that during one of their sessions, Catherine regressed back to a time before she was born, recounting a past life as an 18-year-old girl named Aranda, from the year 1863 BC. Sounds crazy, I know. So, okay, you are a Yale-trained, Columbia-trained doctor, psychiatrist, agnostic, and this woman is saying these things, things are coming out of her mouth that 
that are literally unbelievable. Right. What did you make of that? I mean, so she finishes her hour session. I mean, I would have let her go two hours that day if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> she finishes her session and you say what? I said, I don't know what this is, but I could already see. It was intense. It was cathartic. It was emotional. And I didn't know why Because when you're hypnotized, you, you remember everything you're saying. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not something that you forget. You remember it. And so she probably couldn't believe it herself. For her, it was easier than for me. Because to it was it. so, yeah, to believe it. It was so intense for her. She was experiencing it with emotions and visually and, and sounds and other yeah. senses that it, it became easier over the weeks that followed for her to change her worldview. But for me, I needed more because I was such a skeptic, so left brain, so academic. Yeah. And I started already explaining it away. Like, oh, maybe she saw movies or read about this, or maybe it's the collective unconscious that the psychoanalyst Carl Jung wrote about yeah. or something else going on. But when she came back in the next week, her symptoms were disappearing. Not everyone agrees. Opponents say that the source of these memories don't come from another time in history, but they are more likely to be a combination of confabulation, prior knowledge, imagination, and the suggestive influence or guidance of the hypnotist. There is an obscure phenomenon called cryptomnesia, which may offer a possible explanation. The term describes the return of forgotten memories. The subject believes that these memories are something new and original without realizing that they are old, forgotten ones. Carl Jung explained it this way. An author may be writing steadily to a preconceived plan, working out an argument or developing the line of a story when he suddenly runs off at a tangent. Perhaps a fresh idea has occurred to him, or a different image, or a wholly new subplot. If you ask him what prompted the digression, he will not be able to tell you. He may not even have noticed the change, though he has now produced material that is entirely fresh and apparently unknown to him before. Yet it can sometimes be shown convincingly that what he has written bears a striking similarity to the work of another author, a work that he believes he has never seen before. Then there is the principle of zeitgeist, which is also offered as further proof that past life regressions are not historically accurate accounts. Zeitgeist refers to a dominant set of ideals and beliefs that motivate the actions of the members of society at any particular period in history. For example, it is known that executives, venture capitalists, journalists and authors have a common zeitgeist, which leads to simultaneous similar inventions and innovation. History is not always the result of one person's actions, but is heavily influenced by the actions, ideals and beliefs of many heroes and geniuses living in the same period of time. So past life regression may sadly not offer undisputed empirical evidence of an afterlife. In the program Supernatural Investigator, Tom Harper examines some of the work of Dr. Ian Stevenson of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Virginia, who took a keen interest in stories told by children who claim to have known facts from the lives of other people in history. This audio snippet about Barbara Carlin, who believed she was once the famous Anne Frank, is totally fascinating. I think that what reincarnates 
uh, as far as one can tell from all the literature and so on, is the, the essential self. When I was about two years old, I told my mother that my name was not really Barbro, it was Anne. Barbara was born in 1954 in uh, Sweden to a Christian family. And they had no idea who Anne Frank was because the diary of Anne Frank had not yet been translated in, and published in Sweden. I know my name was Anne Frank, but they insist calling me on Barbro. And my parents insisted me to call them mom and pa, and I knew they were not my real parents. Well, her parents thought this was all fantasy uh, until uh, something happened when she was 10 years old. By this time, the parents knew who Anne Frank, the historic figure, was. And they went on a tour of European cities, including Amsterdam, where the Anne Frank house is located. We were at the hotel room, and my father said, that let's do the Anne Frank house first. So I called for a cab. And I found myself saying to them, we don't need a cab, we're not far away. And I knew exactly where we were. And her parents said, how could you know? You've never been here. And she said, well, I know, let me show you. And she took him by the hand and, and led him on a 10-minute walk through the winding streets of Amsterdam directly to the Anne Frank house. And then when we came up towards the house, I saw that the steps outside were different, were changed. So I stopped and I said, it's strange, they have changed those steps. And I came into that house. It was the most horrifying feeling I have ever had. Because all of a sudden I was back to my dreams. I recognized everything I had seen ever since I was a little child. And her parents at that point realized uh, she was not having fantasies, that she was having memories of a past lifetime. There's certainly evidence from our cases that there can be these memories from past lives that, that are in children. Uh, now, evidence is not the same thing as proof, but there's no question that there is empirical evidence for it. You've been listening to Soul Searching here on Gay SA Radio. I welcome your comments and suggestions. You may reach me by email on studio at gaysaradio.co.za and also via the station's social media platforms using the tag gaysaradio. This program broadcasts weekly on Sundays at 5pm and is repeated the following Sunday at 8am. A podcast of the show is available on the station's website gaysaradio.co.za. I'm Tom Budge. Until next time, goodbye.